Mishnah Clicker. Okay, got it. Thank you. You have your Bibles, you might be turning and marking the book of Romans in the third chapter. We'll be talking about a number of passages before we actually turn there, but that'll be one of the places that we camp and really look diligently at one of the scriptures that is there. While you're turning your Bibles to Romans, the third chapter, let me express my word of appreciation for the presence of each of you. We're visiting with you, with us. We appreciate you being with us. We want you to know that we're trying hard to do the word or the will of the Lord. And if you have anything that you question that we say or do, we'll be happy to sit down and talk with you about those things. We want it to be a time that we glorify God and learn about his word. And if you're joining us online, we appreciate very much your presence this morning also. I suspect that all of us know that the Bible talks a great deal about the subject of righteousness. In fact, one of the words that is translated righteous or righteousness in the Old Testament, one of the words, for instance, that's found when God makes the promise to Abraham and tells him that, that he will be counted righteous, is found 157 times in the Old Testament in 150 verses. And that same word that is translated by a Greek word in the New Testament is found 95 times in 87 verses. I don't expect that that'll be on the final exam, but perhaps it helps you to understand that righteousness is a subject that is talked about a lot in the Bible. And I suspect not only do you know that the righteousness is a subject that is talked about in the Bible, but I suspect that you know that righteousness is exalted in the Scriptures. And we are encouraged to be righteous. For that reason, I want to talk with you, if I may, this morning, about the subject of righteousness, and particularly our path unto righteousness. And so that we can all be on the same page and so that we can know for certain what we're talking about, I want to start by first of all just addressing the question, what is righteousness? And I think Vines gives us a good definition of righteousness when he says that it is the character or quality of being right or just. And then he points out that it was formerly spelled right-wiseness and says which clearly expresses the meaning. Right wiseness carries with it the idea you, you have a sense of you know what's right and what's wrong, and you're trying hard and, and are seeking to do that that is right so that you can be recognized as being a state of righteousness. But the question may arise, why is it so important for us to be righteous? And I mentioned that the Bible holds up righteousness for us. Let me just share with you for a moment the idea and, and show you some of the value of righteousness. I mentioned the number of times it's talked about in the Old Testament. One of the books that talks 
a great deal about righteousness is the book of Proverbs. And we understand that Proverbs is supposedly a book of wisdom that is telling us the wise things to do. And, and it tells us that we ought to be righteous. And not only does it tell us we ought to be righteous, but it tells us the value of righteousness. In Proverbs 10 and verse 2, he says, The treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. And so here's the contrast. Wickedness doesn't do anything for us, but righteousness delivers us from death, he says. In Psalm or Proverbs 15 and verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination in the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. If you care about what the Lord thinks, then you want to be righteous, not wicked. Proverbs 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We talked some in the scriptures or in the Bible class this morning about where we are in this nation. We are tending on paths of sin, and that's not good. We need to be looking for righteousness. And then verse 16, or chapter 16 and verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. And justice there is just used as another uh, term for righteousness, and we'll talk more about that later. But not just the Old Testament exalts righteousness, Think about what the New Testament says about righteousness. For instance, in the book of Matthew in the fifth chapter in verse 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I don't know if we really know what it means to hunger and thirst, but if you could imagine, you know, you, you just want some water, you just want some food, and, and that's driving you. I remember reading an illustration one time where a man and took a, another man and stuck him under the water, and, and he'd wait till he just couldn't hardly stand, and he'd pull him up, and the man would just gasp, grasp for air. And he'd push him back down and hold him, and he'd, he'd bring him back up, and he'd just be grasping, gasping for air. And he's pointing out, that's the way that being hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. You just need it. You want it. And Jesus said, blessed is the man that has that kind of attitude who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. You remember in Matthew, the sixth chapter in verse 33, that Jesus talks about seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he said, all these things shall be added. Out of all the things we seek, he said, here's what you put at the top of your priority. You put his kingdom and you put his righteousness. And so we should be desiring righteousness. That's how important it is. Not only that, you'll remember in 1 Peter 3 and verse 12, Peter said God's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Do you want God to look down on you with favor? Do you want to be able to go to God and pray and, and think, yes, God is hearing my prayers? He says, the one that has that blessing is the one that is righteous. In fact, you remember also in James 5 and verse 16 that James talks about the prayers of the righteous avail much. The implication is if we're not righteous, we go to God in prayer and we can't really expect him to hear our prayers or to be concerned with our prayers. 
But if we're righteous, then he's going to have his ears open in our prayers, and our prayers are going to mean something to him. I don't know where you are in life, but I will just about guarantee you that sometime you're going to be where you want to and feel like you have to cry out to God. And you should want that prayer to be heard. And Peter and James says, if we want our prayers to be heard, then we have to be people that are righteous. And remember the passage we referenced in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The rest of it says, And these things shall be added unto you. Meaning the cares or the things that we care about in life, our food and clothing. He says, These things will be added to us if we're seeking first the righteousness of God. The righteous receives eternal life. You remember, in fact, uh, read a little bit of it a, a moment ago in Matthew, the 25th chapter, about Jesus saying he comes at the end of the world and he gathers up his people, and then he, on the right hand and then on the left, he gathers up those that haven't been uh, loving toward other people and so forth. And then in that last verse 47, he says, the wicked, they go into everlasting punishment. But the righteous, you catch that? But the righteous, they will have eternal life. If you want eternal life, then righteousness must mean something to you. And likewise, in the book of Matthew, in the 13th chapter, in verse 43, Jesus is telling the parable of the tares. And you remember there's a field that has tares, or they've sowed good seed, but somebody comes in and sows tares in afterwards, and their servant says, where did this come from? And the master says, well, somebody sold evil or tares in it at night. The enemy did. And he makes it plain that the enemy is the devil and the good seeds are the children of God and the tares are the, the bad. But he ends up talking about how the harvest comes and the tares are gathered and thrown into the fire. Doesn't take much imagination to know what that's talking about. And the good seed is gathered and put in the barn and then he talks about how that the kingdom comes and, and the sun shines on these. And it's just telling us it's the righteous that receives the eternal reward of blessing from God. And so that's the value of this righteousness. And if you look in the book of 1 Corinthians in the 6th chapter, Paul talks about the, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so hopefully we can see there's value to righteousness. We see the scriptures talking a great deal about righteousness. We should desire righteousness. There's value to righteousness. But there's a problem. Left to ourselves, we aren't very righteous. In fact, you remember Paul in talking to the Romans in the book of Romans in the third chapter in verse 10, he says, it's written, there are none righteous, no, not one. And what he's done at this point, he's talked about the Gentiles and the sins of the Gentiles, and, and you get the feeling they're not righteous. But the Jews kind of prided themselves, and so he turns his attention to the Jews and says, you have a law that tells you those things are wrong, but you still do it. And so he comes down in chapter 3 and draws a conclusion, said it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's not the first time that that statement's been made. The psalmist spoke very similar to it, saying there's none good, 
And it seems to be this that Paul is referring to on this occasion and drawing the conclusion there's just none of us in and of ourselves that are righteous. In fact, Isaiah long ago in the book of Isaiah in the 64th chapter, verse 6, made this statement. But we all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think of some rag that's been out in the carport or the garage and it's wiped up oil and dirt and all that kind of things. It's just filthy. And you hold that up and you think how dirty this is. And the writer Isaiah says, that's what we look like in God's eyes, just trying to make it on our own. We ought to want to be righteous, but if we left to ourselves, we're not righteous. None of us are. And he says, we're really like filthy rags. It's, it's disgusting type thing. And I would remind you that Jesus himself in the book of Luke in the 18th chapter, and beginning in verse 9, tells the story about a Pharisee and a publican that went up into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, remember, stood and prayed and said, I thank you, I'm thus, 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 and thus, talking about all this goodness. And the tax collector beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that that man, the sinner, will be justified before that man who trusted in himself to be righteous. And so if we're thinking somehow that, oh, righteousness matters and, and I've got it made, I can just live righteous in and of myself, then we're mistaken because our righteousness in and of itself is at like filthy rags in the sight of God. And we're deceiving ourselves as much so as the Pharisee if we look at what good things we do and say, ah, I'm righteous in the sight of God. None of us are righteous in the sight of God in and of our own merit. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is the righteousness of God. You think about that phrase, the righteousness of God, and, and there could be two possible answers that you're talking about when you talk about the righteousness of God. It could be talking about God's character. God is righteous. And over and over in the scriptures, we're told that he is righteous. He's, he doesn't have sin. As John said, he's light and in him's no darkness at all, no hint of sin in God. And over and over, we're told he's righteous. Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter in verse 4, righteous and upright is he, talking about God. Ezra 9 in verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. Nehemiah 8, he's talked about how God has kept all his promises and then he says, for you are righteous. The fact that he's kept his word is one signal or, or thing that shows that he's righteous. Psalms 7 and verse 9, the righteous God. And then in Romans 3 and verse 25, he talks about some things that God's done. We're going to look at it in a minute. And he says, this is to demonstrate his righteousness. And I think at that point, when you look at context, He's saying, I did all of these things because I'm righteousness, and what I've done shows you that I am righteous. 
But I want to suggest to you that's not what we mean when we say that the answer to the problem is the righteousness of God. That's not our way of becoming righteous is what I mean. It's certainly behind what we're about to talk about, but it's not our way in and of itself, or it's not the way that passage is talking about. You see, the word righteousness of God can refer to the plan which God uses to make man righteous. Let me give you two verses that I think shows you that God has a plan to make man righteous, and that what he's talking about is it's a plan that came from God, hence the the righteousness of God, the plan of righteousness that come from God. You may remember that in the book of Philippians in the third chapter, in verse 9, and if you remember the context, Paul is talking about how he loves Christ and how he counts all things lost for Christ uh, and, and that he wants to be in Christ. And then in chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, and have the righteousness which is from God by faith. He's looking for a righteousness. He says, it's not my own righteousness. I don't get it particularly because I have kept the law perfectly. I'll tell the story on myself. If I, I decided one time I was going to preach on three types of righteousness. I, I was going to preach on self-righteousness, and I was going to talk about righteousness under the law, and then the righteousness of God. And I was going to use this passage because it talks about not my own righteousness, about self-righteousness. And that morning when I was reviewing the sermon, I thought, that's not what that passage is talking about. Paul is talking about my own righteousness by way of the law. Didn't disrupt the sermon. I just changed and went back to Matthew or to the passage in Luke where this man trusted his own righteousness, his own goodness. But Paul is talking about I seek a righteousness that's not coming by my law keeping, but that it's coming from God by faith. And that should remind us of the fact that in the book of Romans in the first chapter, in verse 16 and 17, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Then he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That plan that we're talking about, the righteousness which is from God, that is revealed for us, and it comes through the story of the gospel. And I want to make mention of the fact that both of these passages tell us that it is by faith. It's not by works, that is, it's not that we earn it, but that this righteousness comes by faith. Remember, we ourselves are unrighteous. We're like filthy rags. But God's righteousness comes not by us living a perfect life, but it comes by faith. And both of these passages that are talking about the righteousness of God emphasizes this fact that it comes by faith. I want you, if you would, uh, to look over for a moment to the book of Romans in the third chapter. And we've talked about this passage before, but I think it's, I, I did it and mentioned it one time and not too long ago in a sermon. I would think we were talking about if I'm saved, why do I feel so lost? I was chastised afterwards because I didn't use the PowerPoint and diagram it out like I had to, to someone else. And they said, 
wasn't as clear. You should have diagrammed it out. And then the second thing, I keep here hearing things, certainly in the denomination world, but even sometimes among my brethren today, that are talking about righteousness, and it has an uncertain sound about it. You wonder just what they're saying, and if they're getting close to the things that the denominations say. But if you want to look at the the righteousness of God in just a very short few passages or verses, look over, if you would, to the book of Romans in the third chapter in verse 24. And remember we read a moment ago in Romans 3.10 how that we all sin or that there's none righteous. And in, in verse 23, he says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now look, if you would, at verse 24. He says, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and what he's telling us is that, that we just mentioned ago, failure on our part, apart from God's plan. By ourselves, we're not righteous. We're all sinners if, we, if we're not relying upon God's righteousness. But then he says, and being justified by faith, by his grace. To be justified means to be pronounced right. And he says, we are the ones that Paul's talking about, those that are taking on the righteousness of God. He says, we are pronounced right, counted as righteousness by God, but he says it's by God's grace. It's his unmerited favor. It's not something we've earned, but it's something that God gives us by his grace. But notice he says, through redemption, that is in Christ Jesus, he says. This righteousness, God's plan for our righteousness, he says, it comes by way of redemption. What is redemption? Well, it's forgiveness. If you look up that word redemption in vines or lexicon, you're going to find it's defined as forgiveness. But go back for a moment to the book of Ephesians in the first chapter in verse 7, and Paul is talking about all spiritual blessings being in Christ. And in verse 7 he says, in him, talking about Christ, we have redemption, same word that's used here, and then our English version put comma, the forgiveness of sin. And so he's telling us what redemption is. He says, we receive this righteousness of God, through grace, by unmerited favor, through redemption, through forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus. Now let me challenge you for a moment and just say, when do we receive that? Well, Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Ananias told Paul in Acts 22.16, Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And in the book of Romans, in the 6th chapter, you recall that Paul said we're baptized into Jesus Christ. And so we understand that we're going to be righteous by God's plan, and that righteousness comes through redemption, through forgiveness of sins, and that Forgiveness of sins comes when we're baptized, not trusting our own merit, but calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Jesus that 
gives us that remission of sin. You know, you could run and jump in the baptistry all day long just to swim or, or just to get wet or to cool off or into some water somewhere else. That doesn't do away with your sins. But if you go to Jesus, calling upon Jesus, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the propitiation of my sin. God has sent you to cleanse me of my sins, and you're baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, looking to him. He says, then we have that forgiveness. We have that redemption. And he goes on to tell us that the reason that is true is because God set him, that is, Jesus, up as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And so Jesus' blood is counted as an appeasement. That's what a propitiation is. And he says it's counted as an appeasement for those who have faith in Jesus. I've mentioned before, I, I remember growing up and seeing the jungle movies and so forth, and they'd be some native tribe, and they thought they had angered God because the crops were dying or, or some other tragedy was coming upon them. And so they might decide they're going to offer their kids as a sacrifice to that God that they're thinking about, that thinks that controls the rain or the sun or whatever. They're trying to appease the, the anger of that God. Well, basically, God has something against us because of our sin. And he said, I will accept the blood of Jesus as an appeasement. That will satisfy the, the thing that is needed so that you can have your sins forgiven and be righteous in my sight. I mentioned earlier that Romans 3 and 25 probably uses that phrase, his righteousness, as meaning God's character. Look at verse 24. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ, all those things we just talked about, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because he passed over the sins that were previously committed. He's talking about people like Abraham that he pronounced to be righteous, and yet nothing had been paid for their sin. And he's saying now Christ comes and he dies on the cross. And he counts that as a propitiation for our sins, but he says it also goes back and covers the sins of those like Abraham and so forth. And it had to for God to still be righteous. He couldn't just wink away the sin and say, it doesn't matter. He is a righteous God that demands justice, but he's also a merciful God. And so this was his plan to bring mercy and justice together where he would be forgiving us based upon the sacrifice, the propitiation of Jesus Christ. But as Hebrews talked about, that blood ran backwards as well as forward. And so that's our, our salvation that we're talking about. And that's the, the righteousness of God that he's talking about. And that's his plan whereby we can be righteous in his sight. Not our own merits, but based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, whom God gives as a propitiation for our sins. And you see the faith mentioned there at the bottom for those who have faith. And you'll remember 
Philippians, the third chapter and verse 9, and again Romans both talked about it's faith. What's the difference between the fellow that just runs down in the baptistry and the fellow that gets remission of sin? It's their faith. It's that one of them believes that God has sent Jesus as a propitiation for his sin. He has faith in that sacrifice. And the other one is just doing whatever he wants to do. I want you to know that this is an imputed righteousness. We hear things, and this is where I, I hear the denominations talk about imputed righteousness, and they miss the mark, and I, I hear some uncertain sounds among some of our brethren today. We need to understand that the righteousness of God is an imputed righteousness. But we need to understand what God means when he tells us that this is an imputed righteousness. If you're looking at the book of Romans in the third chapter and you look at Romans 3 and verse 23 through 24 and into 25, where we've looked at his plan for righteousness, he goes on and, and makes some comparison between faith and, and the law. But he comes back in chapter 4 and he illustrates this righteousness by faith. And he does so with two examples. He does so with Abraham and he does so with David. Look, if you would, for a moment to the book of Romans in the fourth chapter, and for time's sake, look at verse 2. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to, be, to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How did Abraham get to be righteous? By his works, by the things he did? He says, not by that. He says, his faith, for he believed, and it was counted, accounted to him. And that word accounted is the word that is oftentimes in some versions translated uh, as being imputed. And so he says, Abraham was imputed as righteous, or his faith was imputed to him as righteousness. I want to suggest to you two things from that. One, you see that it's by grace, because he says, it's not a works. If it was works, it wouldn't be by grace. But he is saved by grace, and, and so he's telling us, this is not by works. It's by grace, this counting you righteous by your faith. And notice, if you would, that he says you're justified by faith or by grace. And the second thing, I want you to notice particularly, he says it's his faith that is counted or imputed as righteousness and not the perfect life of Jesus. Because this is what some are saying. This is how we're saved. It's by the perfect life of Jesus that, that Jesus' perfect life is transferred to us. And God doesn't see us. He sees Jesus, this perfect Jesus, and we're still full of sin, but God just doesn't see us. He's looking at Jesus. Or he's transferred Jesus' righteousness to us and our sins to Jesus. This scripture does not say that. It says his faith was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. Nothing about the transferring of Jesus' righteousness to us. Now, this is not to say that the righteousness of Jesus is not important. If Jesus had come and not lived a perfect life, he would have needed a sacrifice just like we need one as much as we do. 
He was able to be acceptable as a sacrifice because he lived a perfect life. He set an example for us because he lived a perfect life, showing us how we should walk and how we should walk in righteousness. But nowhere, listen to me, nowhere in the Scriptures does it ever talk about the righteousness of Jesus being transferred to us and God seeing his righteousness rather than our forgiveness of sins and counting us righteous. I mentioned the two examples. I mentioned David also, and I want you to notice beginning in verse 6, he says, just as David also described. And so just like Abraham is an example, David is an example. And on Abraham, he just said his faith is counted to him for righteousness. He doesn't give us all the workings and the details. He just makes that statement. But he gives us a little more picture in David himself. He says, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God, listen, imputes righteousness. That's King James, New King James Version. And he said, imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who leave or who, uh, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You have imputation two ways. One, there's imputed righteousness, and the reason that is imputed righteousness is that the sin is not imputed to us. It's not accounted to us. Even though we've done it, there's forgiveness, and hence it's not counted against us. And, and notice these two things in this. David, like Abraham, and it is an example of imputed righteousness. And it's by faith and not by works, and by grace that David was talking about this imputed righteousness. And notice particularly in David that he's talking about, again, that it comes through forgiveness. He said the blessed man's sins are forgiven. And that's the reason Christ doesn't impute those sins, don't keep writing those things down against us and holding those things against us. He has forgiven us. And it's not a word in there about Christ's perfect life is transferred unto us. That's not in there. And that's not what imputed righteousness in the Scripture is talking about. Imputed righteousness in the Scripture is the man that is forgiven of his sins, made righteous by God through forgiveness of sins because of his faith in God and sending Jesus in order to cleanse us of our sins. Let me close by just making clear to you the path of righteousness. You've seen this ad on TV, I think it's on inspiration where I see it most, but it talks about what matters to older people in insurance is the three P's, price, price, price. Well, what matters about righteousness is the three R's. There's the redemption, and that's what we've just finished talking about, where Christ's sacrifice and our sins can be washed away and forgiven, and, and hence we're righteous. And the second thing is righteous living, that after our sins are forgiven, we can't keep on just doing sin and expecting God just to keep forgiving us even if our heart hadn't changed. You remember in the book of Romans and the third chapter we've just talked about this plan. Dave mentioned Romans 5 about the, the salvation we have and the peace that we have in Christ Jesus. 
And then he says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. Have you ever noticed, first of all, that Paul knew that these people that he's talking about, justified by faith, they've been baptized? He didn't stop and say, now, now some of you have been baptized, and let me tell you, oh, he just said, as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, that we are dead to sin and alive unto righteousness. And then look a little bit further, if you would, in Romans 6, and drop down to about verse uh, 17, and he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine of which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so been baptized into Christ, and now we are dead to sin, and we have become alive unto righteousness. We're trying to walk in righteousness. Look over, if you would, to the book of First John in the third chapter. Just one quick statement there. And John tells us, he says, He who practiced righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now, John's writing to Christians, and he's trying to make it plain that even though we're Christians and Christ has died for us, we don't have the right now just to go out and live in sin. We have to walk in righteousness. And somebody may say, well, uh, how do we do that? We didn't do it before we came to Christ. How do we do it now? Well, we have Christ helping us, but, but there's still forgiveness. Look at First John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise to those of us in this room that's Christians that have already been baptized, that I'm out striving to live in righteousness. But if I fail some way, I don't just call it quits and give it up. I go to God in prayer and pray for forgiveness. And that same blood that cleansed me in baptism cleanses my sins now. And through forgiveness, I remain righteous in God's sight. And then I would suggest the third R is the resurrection and heaven. There's a lot about heaven that I don't know and don't understand, I think. I know it's going to be good. I'm sure it's going to be even better than I can imagine it to be. And I know that we will put off at the resurrection this fleshly body, and so Satan doesn't have the flesh to tempt as he had in times past. But I envision heaven as being a place with no sin. Listen, if you would, to the book of Revelation in the 22nd chapter, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were of the healing of the nations. And then listen particularly. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be there, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on his forehead. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives light, and he shall reign forever. 
heaven will be a place of peace, rest. And I think we can quit fighting the sin that we fight here. And nothing accursed will be able to be there. Does righteousness mean anything to you? Do you really hunger and thirst after righteousness? Want to be righteous in God's sight more than anything else? There's a way. Not in our own merits, but in our faith in Jesus. Knowing that God gave him to be a propitiation for our sins. And that we come to him and we're baptized, calling upon him to wash away our sins. And he'll do it. And no matter how filthy and dirty we are before, when we come up out of the water to grave of baptism, we are righteous in his sight. And if you've done that and you're walking, but you realize you've, you've gotten out of the path of righteousness, there's still hope. I think about Paul in Romans 7, and he talks about, I want to do good, but I don't do good sometimes. I know not to do evil, but I do do evil sometimes. And he talks about he's miserable while he's under the law because he realizes he's condemned. But in chapter the latter part of chapter, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And he answers, Christ Jesus. And John tells us, even as Christians, we don't have to feel like Paul felt like because we've misstepped. We can go to God in prayer and ask God to forgive us And because of the blood of Jesus, he'll do it. Christ was righteous. Because of that, he could be my sacrifice. But he doesn't transfer his righteousness personally to me. He forgives me of my sins. He cleanses me of my sins. He washes me of my sins. And by that action, I am justified, pronounced right by God. And I have all of those promises that we talked about earlier. And you can have them now. If you're subject to God's invitation, would you come while together we stand and sing? Bring Christ.